Your security program is not a function of your IT department. Your security program is part of your risk management function in the organization. And that means you have to look at things like, what is the risk of the kind of culture our leadership has set? Because if it's a really negative culture, we might be encouraging people to become in disgruntled malicious insiders. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Joining me today is Nathan Wensler, Chief Security Strategist from Tenable. Today, we're discussing the great reshuffle combined with already strained security resources, which shines an even brighter spotlight on the need for organizations to have an effective insider threat management program. A 2022 Cost of Insider Threat Survey by Ponemon Institute found that insider-led cybersecurity incidents have increased by 44% over the last two years, with average annual costs of known insider-led incidents up to more than a third to 15.38 million US dollars. So today we're going to be talking about all of this. So Nathan, thanks for joining. I'm really keen to get into some of the that that Ponemon report and. Yeah, I'm, I'm keen to also start with how you're seeing the insider threats change. Yeah, well, well, first, thanks for having me and really appreciate the time here to do that. You know, insider threat is kind of an interesting one. I have been really focused on the kind of people side of security for a good chunk of my career, both as a, as a former CISO and you know, security leader, as also as a practitioner. So this is kind of a topic that's sort of near and dear to my heart. We've watched this evolve quite heavily not just over the last couple of years when we've seen the great reshuffling happen, but even longer than that. Initially, insider threat was really seen as only malicious, disgruntled employees who were trying to take some kind of revenge action against their company or soon to be former company. So there's a lot of concern about intellectual property loss, about data theft, these kinds of things. But I think what we've seen perhaps the most tellingly about how it's all changed in the last two years has really emphasized this point as we're seeing a lot more of sort of accidental or even in some cases where the employees are simply not even aware that they are participating in some form of intellectual property theft or data theft can be as simple as policies just not being clear. And so folks think that it's okay to take their laptop home or they're working from their own devices with work and they copy things down, not realizing that they're breaching policy. The other half of this is, you know, going from an accidental kind of standpoint is we're seeing a lot of challenges to organizations trying to understand when they see an employee's credentials being used to commit some sort of theft. Is it really the, the employee they think it is, right? We know that cyber attackers have been going after credentials as part of their attack process for ever in a day. Right. It's the, it's really one of those common things that they, they move towards. But if I am an attacker and I can get someone's credentials that's already inside the company, you know, we might look at it after the fact as the, as the humans involved and say, well, obviously that wasn't Nathan. That was someone who compromised his credentials. But from a technology standpoint, the systems have no way to really know that the, the, the user behind Nathan, as long as they've authenticated, they've done their pieces correctly. That's, that's Nathan's credential and it's allowed to do things. So it's gotten much more complicated, 
right? We can't just assume that it's a malicious actor who we know. It's often, again, accidental or perhaps even more importantly, incidental. And we're seeing a lot more focus from organized criminal groups who are compromising credentials and then quietly behaving like the user to perform their their theft of either data or intellectual property. Right. So it's a it's a real big challenge for these organizations because it's not as clear as it used to be, and it's happening much more frequently. So in the start, before the interview, when I said forty four percent over the last two years, and that, that that that's pretty high, like not like ten percent. So why do you think that jump is so significant within two years? Is it because we, like you said before, like BYOD, people are sort of doing things from home now. There's sort of an easier environment for, for potentially people to do the wrong things or? I think you're going right down the right path here. I mean, the last few years, obviously, between the, the pandemic times and how that sort of spawned, if you will, the great reshuffling and people switching jobs quite frequently. And it's become that sort of process helps encourage, I should say encourage, but causes the opportunity for more of that incidental and accidental sort of data loss, right? Out of organization at the beginning of the pandemic, they weren't prepared for a work from home state. They didn't have laptops. They didn't have equipment they could send home. So sure, have your employees use their home systems and we'll make the best of it for now. But that also opens up the opportunity for that same employee to now be storing their corporate data on that system. So the sort of chaotic nature of what we've been going through the last few years started that process and just creating more places where data could be moved to areas they didn't control very well. When you couple that with employees who are just moving from job to job to job to job, again, they may not realize what anything that they're doing is just like wrong, but they're taking data with them, you know, place to place. And that leaves the companies in a place of, of really severe risk because again, they're trying to keep control over their property, over their data. And it gets really, really hard to do. So I think the two pieces together are likely what's been driving the bulk of that over the last couple of years. But I think also, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that just like that, we've seen an increase in cyber attacks along these lines too. So criminal actors know that this chaos is happening. They know either the endpoints are not being well protected or, or controlled so that they're not able to, to deal with these kinds of data problems or users are bringing their own devices in, which are often less secured and easier to compromise. They know that. And so they've been taking advantage of this as well. So there's definitely going to be some contribution from just the attackers taking advantage of the situation. But I, I still, you know, from what we see from trends and in my speaking with organizations that have struggled with this, I would say the majority of that increase just comes from the complexity that we've been dealing with from, from users in, in an incidental problem. When you say users from an incidental problem, what do you mean specifically? Well, I mean, it just, it, it's not a malicious sort of state from the, the employees of the end users, right? It, it's they're moving data often without even knowing or by accident. It's just sort of incidental to the fact that they are working from home in an uncontrolled environment or moving to a new job and not necessarily in a malicious sort of capacity. So it's not like John didn't get his bonus and then all of a sudden he sells all the data, it's on the dark web, so to speak. So it's less like less of that? Yeah. I mean, I think over time we've been seeing less of that, which I, I think may, may seem counterintuitive for a lot of folks, especially if you're an organization that has had to deal with that. 
but it's the frequency problem, right? Do malicious actors internally still exist? Absolutely. Should organizations be concerned about, you know, are we treating our employees fairly? Are we creating a good culture so we don't have a lot of angry folks? Are we being fair? Those are all things that help kind of support a place where people may not be so angry about their situation and then take out some sort of revenge on the company, but they still do happen. The trick here is though that the vast majority of what's happening is the rest of it we've been talking about. It's the, it's the accidental kind of thing or the criminal actors who've taken over credentials and then are using them as if they were the employee. Those happen far more frequently. So if we're trying to try to get our arms around the problem, that's kind of where you need to focus because that's what's happening more often than not. So we've got sort of two buckets of people. So the oversight from, from users, so actual staff that made a mistake, like you said, they're not in controlled environments. And then it's easier now for, I guess, attackers to hide behind potentially like your profile, for example. So it's like easier to frame you type of thing. Is that what you're saying? Like it's easier to say, oh, exactly. it was definitely neither. So, so how, okay, so that, that's really interesting. So how does that go? So just so hypothetically, you know, you've been called up because they think that you are, you know, a malicious insider and they're like, well, all the fingerprints are on you, Nathan. It's all you. It's all you. How does a company navigate that? Because what happens at the end of the day, it wasn't you and you've been fired from your job because all roads lead to you. And in fact, it wasn't. That's an awesome question. And we could probably spend another hour talking about sort of the HR and legal ramifications around how you how you work with security organizations to deal with these kinds of security incidents? The answer, quite frankly, is it takes a lot of work. This is, and this is why this is such a major risk factor for a lot of organizations in the security space, because in order to investigate all of the data points, to look at all the event logs, to sort of go back and do the forensic analysis of all the pieces that were done, that's some, for a lot of companies, that means hiring an outside firm can be weeks, can be incredibly expensive. In the middle of this, you're already dealing with the data breach itself, right? You've already had loss. So the company's impacted. You're spending more money. It's taking a whole lot of time. Meanwhile, it all seems like an employee. So you've got a lot of the HR and kind of cultural problems you've got to deal with with an employee that's got a dark cloud over their head that they're worried about. By and large, when we look at the evidence, these things, you can absolutely go back in time and figure out what happened. But that's a really expensive and time-consuming effort. So credit where credit's due, most organizations I've ever worked with don't generally jump the gun and just immediately fire someone, especially when it's a pretty serious data breach. They're going to do an investigation. They're going to look into it to find out what, ha- what actually happened, especially if they're building a legal case. You've got to have that evidence. You've got to have that data. So none of that happens very quickly, but it is incredibly expensive. And it's so time consuming that you might clear the employee, but boy, you are going to go through a lot more headaches getting there than if you had just done the work up front to protect their credentials and make sure that, you know, it, it couldn't do anything abusive or steal any data they shouldn't have been able to access, that kind of thing. Wow, this is really interesting. Okay, so I'm curious to know, so as you sort of said before, Nathan, like they don't just sort of, you know, come up to you and say like, you're fired, it was you, you're out. So what do you what do you do then? So just, okay, just say I found out, you know, all roads lead to you or we can use someone else's name in the mix, John. How, like, h- how do you handle it? So what do you, what do you do? Do you put them in quarantine? Do you put them in like work jail? Like, 
you can't have them there on site. Like you don't know what you're dealing with. Like what do you do? How do you handle this? Yeah, that's again, it's it's a, it's kind of a complicated answer. So you're you're diving into, you know, what is the incident response process look like when you suspect you've got a credential compromise? And you really have got a couple of moving parts here. You've got potentially an attacker that's compromised the credential. So you're not just looking to quarantine the actual user. You're actually trying to compromise or quarantine the attacker. And if you do anything to modify that user account they're using, if you were to delete it or quarantine it or whatever, you do alert the attacker that you're onto them, right? So that could cause more damage. The containment is the key upfront. Right? You've got to start to do some investigation work, figure out the scope of the problem, see if there's ways that you can contain or limit the, the damage that's not only already been done, but the damage that the attacker, again, if it is an outside entity, could potentially do. And once you've got some boundaries set for containment, then, you know, quite frankly, you're spot on about the next steps, right? You're going to look at quarantining that user account revoking some of the access permissions so that it can't continue to do things that it shouldn't be doing. You're also, of course, going to be monitoring your networks very heavily to make certain that other accounts don't, don't start behaving in a strange manner. So it's a lot of, of kind of permissions and rights containment that starts to happen. For the user themselves, the employee, you know, most of these situations, it's a little annoying. I, I would say what I see most commonly is they just get issued a new credential that they use kind of during this process. So they often can get kind of right back to work, do what they need to do if they're not legitimately the direct suspect of what's going on. But yeah, containing that damage is really kind of the key first step. And that can be a really complicated piece between rights, permissions of the account, between network access, between the, the data sets that you're trying to control and protect. It could be application access. So a lot of work has to be kind of coordinated and done so that when you throw the switch, so to speak, you can really isolate that compromised account and start to push out the attacker from the environment and begin the recovery process. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I do hear what you say. It makes sense. So it's very convoluted. It's quite an arduous process as well. So what happens, you do all this process and then you get to the end of the line and you worked out it wasn't John. How do you handle that? Because then this person's probably been ostracized. It's probably obvious the guy's haven't seen John for a while. Something's happened. Sure. How do you handle that from a leadership perspective? And then, and then you got to think about it like if you're John and you've been, well, not, I'm not going to say the word accused, but you've had to go through this whole process and it wasn't you. Like, how, like, do they just leave in the end? Like, like, what have you seen in your experience? Well, I really appreciate this question. I got to tell you, because this is, this is such a massive, massive piece of leadership culture and organizational culture and how you deal with your people. Right. This is not really in a lot of ways, not even a security problem anymore. This is a people problem. So how you go about it initially from a leadership perspective is going to set the tone for everything that happens after that. And that's really the key. So yes, if your leadership, you know, gets the first, you know, the first note from their team, Hey, we think we've been compromised and we think it's Joe. If that leader's first instinct is to call Joe and start screaming and say, what are you doing? We're going to investigate you. We know what's happening. Yeah. You've set the tone for the whole thing. Right? But you, could you just are, jump you are in going- there, Nathan. <laughs> People have definitely done that. Am I not wrong? Oh, no, I, I, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it, it <laughs> the, the challenge there with that is it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
right? When you, when you jump to the gun like that, you don't go through the, the real work to understand what really happened. You have created a malicious employee. You have to be a disgruntled person now that works for you. And yeah, you're, if they don't quit on their own accord, they're not going to be really willing to, to work with you in a, in a cooperative manner. They're not going to be a great employee. You're going to have massive, massive business problems on top of the potential for, well, I mean, just kind of human psychology, right? If I was Joe in that case, there might be a point six months down the road where I say, you know, I'll show them, you know, they thought I did it. Well, I'll do it for real this time. Now you have that problem, right? It sounds a little ridiculous, but this is why. It's true. It's 100% true. It's why we know in the security side of things, I, I reiterate this with a lot of people constantly in talks that I give and consulting work that I've done in the past. Your security program is not a function of your IT department. Your security program is part of your risk management function in the organization. And that means you have to look at things like, what is the risk of the kind of culture our leadership has set? Because if it's a really negative culture, we might be encouraging people to become in disgruntled malicious insiders. That's a risk. That's a thing that we have to address somehow. So as companies are getting a little more mature about these processes, they start to realize that security isn't just you know, a bunch of techies sitting in their basements wearing hoodies and trying to hack the world. When you see it as a risk management function, it starts to make more sense about asking these broader business questions around, well, how do we encourage people to work with us? How do we approach a, an incident like this in a way that doesn't single out the employees so that we can do this in a positive manner and not set ourselves up for future problems? This is really very much within the realm of a security a discussion alongside the business, HR, legal, everybody else involved. So how leadership sets the tone is critical in these kinds of things and, and not accusing the employee out of the gate being aware that compromise of credentials is a real thing, a very common thing, letting the investigation do what it needs to do. And so you have the facts about what happens before you come to any conclusions. All of these kinds of factors are really, really critical in the response process. And still, still doesn't happen. I mean, some folks still do it the way you hinted at there and described, but we're trying to get people more and more to have that, that more the kind of data-centric approach to the problem uh, before you do anything too rash. So I want to focus now on the response side of things. Now, in the Australian market, there's been a large data breach. You've probably heard about it. You know, people are sort of claiming like, oh, how they responded was really bad. I mean, yeah. I would say more often people would probably say how companies respond is bad. And it's probably because they're not doing it every day. Like if you're doing something once a blue moon, you're not going to be too super sharp on how you respond. So from your perspective, hopefully this type of, you know, compromised credential behavior is not happening every day, or you were not, they're not sort of dealing with insider threats every day, but might maybe a thing. So how, how would you go about making sure that people, when it does happen, people are on their game? They're not sort of like running around. They don't know what's going on. They're calling, they're calling Joe, they're going off their head. Like people act in panic. And, and it's so easy to sit back, you know, on our couches when nothing's going wrong and accuse the company that there's chaos. It's, it's just because they're not, it's not habit. They're not doing it every day. Like, you know, how if you don't go to the gym very often, you're not great at it. But if you're going every day, you're a lot better at it. And this is the same thing in incident response. Like 
We're not doing incident response to this level every single day. So, of course, people are not going to be as sharp with it. But, like, what are some advice you can give to people to make sure when it happens, you are on your A game? Man, this is a fantastic question. I love this, by the way. You know, I, I remember early in my career when I was still an analyst working for some government agencies, I did a lot of training around formal incident response processes, right? How to build a program, how to execute the program, that kind of thing. And back then, 20 years ago, right? <laughs> the advice, the, the number one advice is practice, practice, practice. Right? To your point, you do it every once in a while, it's hard. When you do it all the time, you, you, the muscle memory kicks in, you go through it and you do it. But where practice is a problem is no one ever practices an incident while under the stress of an actual breach. Everyone kind of knows, ah, it's just practice, not really happening. I'll get the playbook out. I'll run through the steps and then we can just check the box and tell, you know, tell management we did, we did our bit this year. So there's companies have some different ways of going about this. And I would tell anyone listening, if you heard what I just said and your reaction is, oh, great, we'll actually cause a data breach that we control and not tell anyone where it's practice and we'll really freak them out and we will, <laughs> we'll do this under a live stress exercise. Please do not do that. Please, 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 please do not do that. Your employees will resent you. It's not a fun exercise. I've been in those situations. I have consulted for companies that have done that. And it can be, the reaction you get from staff can be anything from, you know, outright, outright resentment to a mass walkout. Uh, of your your people. So you do have to practice. You do still have to go through the exercise of, you know, letting people know when you're going to do it, schedule the time, build out a good test plan so that it seems as real as it can be. Do not make people go through an actual live fire exercise, even if you control it. Now, that said, the way that we get, we get through this is bringing in the right stakeholders to help people coordinate in an effective manner when the real stressful situation happens. And this is probably the place where I see most programs fail because they see incident response as a purely technical exercise, right? Get the security team in, get the IT folks in, the folks who manage firewalls, or get them in a room, we'll lock the environment down and we'll get rid of whatever the problem is, ransomware, cyber criminal, whatever it is. What they're missing people from that table you don't have HR involved in that table. You don't have legal counsel involved in that conversation. You don't have someone designated for communications, both internally and potentially publicly. And what I typically find is the incident response programs who take into account as part of the exercise and, as, and with all their training, when they bring in the business stakeholders that will be involved, like I said, HR, legal, ER, Depending on the kind of company you are, marketing perhaps, make sure you can restore competence to your customers, these kinds of things. Those people have a stake in this, right? And they can be really critical parts of the, the, how well you deal with the response. And when you have those people in place and they know what they're supposed to be doing, they know that they're, what their part is, and actually does alleviate a lot of stress from the technical folks that they don't have to worry about those kinds of pieces, someone else's responsibility. I'm the security analyst trying to lock down the credential for doing more damage. I can trust that there is somebody already building a 
you know, PR response. They're going to get out in front of the public. We're going to have a coordinated, well thought out sort of message. That's not something I'm going to have to do. Not something I have to worry about. I can just focus here. Seems like a small thing, but it's a really, really critical part to help negate some of that stress that's going to happen when you're actually trying to put out a live fire from a data breach or some other type of cyber attack. Yeah, this is okay. That's really interesting. And you're absolutely right. It's all well and good, you know, to practice these things. The, the question that I'm really interested in now is talking about, you know, practicing it. So I used to work for a, a shopping mall and uh, we used to have to do tabletop exercises every week. Like what happens if someone comes into the mall with a machete, which absolutely happened. How do we respond? And we had to go around and say, how oh, this is what we do and all of that. But the thing is, when you're in that moment and someone's coming into a shopping mall in the middle of the day with a machete, it's very different to sitting in a tabletop exercise. So how do we sort of transfer people from it's all well and good to do all the practices and all of that when, like you said, you're not under duress, you're not under stress? How how do you sort of replicate um, the same type of environment without going, like you said, like full-fledged and trying to like replicate, it's going to create problems because when we're in a re- controlled, relaxed, it's not really happening, you you can think a little bit more logically. But when you're in the moment and you've got something that's live action that's happening, it's a yeah. lot harder then to respond. So how, how do you like mentally prepare people? Because I've often seen like people that, you know, for example, that prepare for four years for the Olympics, they get there and they, I don't know, the first thing they first second they fall over and they break their leg and it's all over type of thing. Like it's easy to think about it, but on the day it changes how we operate. It's a great question. And and there is no real simple answer to this, frankly. I've seen people do it. I mean, I've seen organizations who've said, well, we're just going to shut off power to the data center and see what everybody does. And they live shut off the power to their data center to create the panic and whatnot. That's an incident. That's That's a data breach. You've had an attack. You just attacked yourself. Hey, so it's not even a practice thing at that point. That's a live, real attack. Just happens to be self-inflicted. That's not the way to practice. That doesn't really benefit anything in the long run. I think we have to acknowledge that there really is not a way to fully 100% prepare people for that moment of when it actually happens, right? The best you can do is be absolutely prepared, right? Have a lot of training, a lot of documentation, do the tabletop exercises so people are really comfortable. And there's a lot of folks when they are in panic mode will often resort to sort of, you know, the comfort of structure. Right? They'll blindly follow the list or the checklist they've got in front of them because that's how they can keep their mind focused on something other than the, the, you know, the negative thing happening around them. Some of this is a leadership question, right? If you have a good culture, you've got positive leadership, you know that, uh, that your, your managers and your upper management folks have your back, right? Then infuse a little more comfort into your employees so that when, again, they're in the midst of a fire, it's one less thing to panic about. If they see that management's involved just like they are trying to help them through the process and protect the company, everybody's in it together. It's, uh, that's a valuable kind of piece to reassure folks that I may not have to panic quite as much. There's a lot of small things like that that you can do to help as much as possible. But there really is no way short of shooting yourself in the foot and attacking yourself that you ever can really recreate that same kind of level of stress. So you've just got to be ready to mitigate in every way. 
help people when you can, have backups for, for folks. If somebody really can't handle it, let's bring in someone who's, you know, who's okay, or maybe, you know, slightly more okay. There's a lot of change and chaos that happens in the, in, when you're in the midst of dealing with those things. And insider threats especially, right? Because you're still made, you may still be in the mode of, is it one of us? Right? You're still trying to figure that out. So there's a lot of additional stress. But um, you've got to do as much preparation as you can and then be ready on the day to help people through it, knowing that it's chaos. So in terms of being ready, what are some of the things like more broadly that you would sort of recommend for people? And the other question I'd love to ask you as well is tabletop exercises. How frequent should people be doing this? And I guess that depends, but I mean, I've had various answers, so I'm keen to get yours. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so let me talk about the preventative part first, because I think that's really the key here. We've just spent the last few minutes, several minutes talking about the, the scariness of when the fire happens, right? It's terrible. It's the worst thing. Everyone's in panic. It's awful. Here's what's more awful than that. Companies who don't do the work up front and they're dealing with that kind of situation where everything is on fire multiple times a year, right? You're concerned about staff retention. If you're concerned about culture, if you're a, a security person or an IT person, you're going, this is the seventh breach we've had this year. Nobody's trying to solve this stuff. I'm out of here. I, I don't want to deal with this. So... We talk a lot about incident response as an after the fact kind of thing. And that is exactly what it is right there in the name, response. But what we're not focusing on is what are the kinds of things we should be doing to ensure that as few attacks are successful as possible so that we don't have to execute the incident response program as often. Not at all. I'm not going to say 100%. There's no such thing. But just can we start to get it down so that we have a, a program? The response program only triggers once every so often, not once a month. And the only way you get there is by really focusing on the preventative measures. And the preventative part of it is, I think, frankly, where we've lived for a long time in security. After the effect, responsive tools like your endpoint security products and SIM tools for, you know, a lot of, a lot of ways are event based. So they're after the fact kind of, it's kind of tools. They're, they're critical. We have to have them because again, we have to deal with the contingency of the attack. Nothing. But when you look at all the tools we have for gaining visibility into the app that we're trying to make, understand how complicated our attack surface is, where could an attacker actually breach us? Patch management. We've been doing patch management. 30 plus years, right? That's a critical piece of the preventative measure. Close the holes that an attacker might use to get into your environment by removing vulnerabilities from the organization. Credentials, like we've been talking about that a bit this whole time. Get your arms around the credential problem, right? Do that up front, not when your house is on fire. You want to make sure that you have employees have appropriate rights assigned to their, their accounts. They haven't been given domain admin access to your whole organization just because it's easier. <laughs> we have to do these kinds of cyber hygiene preventative steps up front to understand the lay of the land, mitigate as much risk as we possibly can, close a lot of the vulnerabilities and places we can be exploited as much as possible. That is going to make your entire incident response program much more effective 
because you're only going to really need that when it's something very, very serious and it's something that not bring people out from having to do it all the time. There's also something to be said for the fact that the more you fix up front, not only is it cheaper, easier, quicker to do that, but if you know what you fixed, then you also know kind of what's left. And that also helps you refine the containment process for during incident response. You know that the attacker can't take advantage of certain exploitable vulnerabilities or domain admin credentials because you've done the work up front to protect them. That is a really powerful way to help your containment strategy. It's going to really make your, your response process more effective. So don't lean on incident response as the only mechanism, right? The preventative piece is key. And the more that you do to get visibility of your environment, the more you do to understand how it all connects in terms of if this perimeter system is breached, what can they do from there? Whose credentials could they compromise? What other vulnerabilities might be out there that they could move to? Understanding all of that and then starting to build a security plan around it up front, that's your, that is really what your, your inside your threat sort of management plan is. That's how you've got to focus. Then when the inevitable happens, you've got your response plan to start to mitigate after the fact. Yeah, that's interesting. That's excellent. So do you think, Nathan, that I love what you're saying, but then when it when it comes to the reality of doing this, this type of stuff just gets pushed down the chain because people got other things to do. Like they've got like, oh my gosh, we have a hundred and thousand other things that we've got to do, or we've got to mm-hmm. make sure that, you know, we're compliant and then we're going to get audited. So we have to prepare for the audit. And so then because this isn't like a live thing that's happening, it's just so easy to go by the wayside. Do you think that that's why when things do become alive and people are in panic mode because they haven't had the time to prepare and be preventative because other things were taking place? I think it's a huge part of it. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about just the panic part alone, yeah, you're not prepared. You haven't done the work. You have no idea what your environment looks like. You don't really know the lay of your own land. You don't know what other compromisable things are out there, misconfiguration, credentials or vulnerabilities, whatever. You've made the response part that much more complicated. I mean, it's in a lot of ways, I mean, it's sort of like, like car maintenance, right? Why do, why do we get our, why do we get oil changes in our cars instead of just letting the engine burn itself up and then get a new engine? Well, because it's cheaper and easier and simpler to do the maintenance up front and not have to go through the damage and, and the hassle and the weeks of time replacing the engine. We're kind of talking about the same thing here. Is replacing your oil a fun process? No, no one, you know, we all would rather have to do, you know, do other things in our time, but I guarantee you it's less of a problem than getting your whole engine replaced. So that is so true. It, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on. And I would say that what I'm seeing change in the industry, and this is a really big shift that even in the last five years has been happening, but probably more so in the last two or, or, or so. Organizations are really starting to understand the value of better communication about technical problems to a non-technical audience. So you mentioned, and I'm going to use your, you know, kind of your own comment. When you have a hundred thousand things to do, right? Wow, it just seems like too much. What am I going to do about it? Right. That's exactly the problem the security industry has had for years. We go to our C-suite executives. We go to business leaders and other teams and say, hey, 
we found 300,000 vulnerabilities last month in the environment and we fixed 100,000 of them. Now, if you're a security practitioner and you live in that world, that sounds pretty awesome, right? Fixing 100,000 vulnerabilities in one month? Whoa, like I've done a really good job. I'm being proud of myself. But you know what your chief financial officer is going to say? So you only fixed a third of the things? That's an F. Like you guys are failing. Why am I budgeting your team when you only did one third of the work? You told me you had 300,000, you only fixed 100,000. They don't know context. They don't understand what the, you know, the meaning behind the kind of volume-based metrics that security tools are really, really good at briefing. So we have to start becoming more mindful about how we communicate. Volume-based metrics like that are really important to understand workload, right? I may need to go to my IT team and say, listen, we've got a lot of problems. We have X number of hundreds of patches to deploy. It's a lot more work this month. Let's talk about how we do that. But if I'm going to go up to the leadership folks, and this again, it's, we're talking about budget approvals. We're talking about more staffing. We're talking about even just culturally having them see security as a value to the organization. You've got to communicate that kind of information differently. And when you can do that, when you can come to your boards or your C-suites and say, listen, you know, we can, I can show you, we have a letter grade for our environment right now. And over the last nine, you can see that our letter grade has gone from a, you know, a D plus to a B minus. We're still working we're heading that to the right direction, but things are getting better. I may not understand a thing about cybersecurity, but I can understand grades or a score or a trend line. Like these are things I can, I can easily understand and sort of intuitively, and at least know the direction we're heading. And what we see, if you, if you take that to the kind of its next step, and we're talking here about attacks, insider threat attacks and that kind of thing, trying to create visualizations of those kinds of problems is even a more powerful form of communication, at least that I find. So one of the, the talks I've been, I, I was giving recently was talking about how to look at this concept of attack path analysis, right? It's a very common forensic tool. We see it used after the fact for data breaches all the time we, where they go in and they've mapped out all the data and they can, they can put a nice little sort of flow line that says, you know, this is the system the attacker broke into. They moved to this system. They performed a privilege escalation attack. They moved to this system. And it's literally like a, you know, a Vizio diagram to, you know, going back to my dating myself about my Microsoft tools. But it really is. I mean, it's a visual representation of how an attacker moves to the organization. An attack path. What I've been starting to recommend with people is to start to look at that up front, right? Don't look at those kinds of things after the fact. Let's go back and look at what does my environment look like from a security posture state? Where are all the vulnerabilities, the misconfigurations, the credential problems? Where could it all go wrong? And if I can correlate that data and give it context against each other, I can visualize the same thing. I can actually say, well, we see these vulnerabilities here. That means an attacker could do lateral movement to these other systems or get access to credentials. And we sort of, you know, hypothesize what they could do. What the visualization can help with, though, is, and, and I've seen several organizations go through this exercise, inevitably, there's one or two choke points where they start to say, huh, I have this one server in the middle of my environment 
that it doesn't require any elevated access to, to get to, but it's been given because of service accounts or a legacy application, a full domain admin access to everything on the back end. And so you'll see literally hundreds of potential attack paths flowing through that one server. It's a visual, right? I can go to my board and say, hey, I need to protect this server because I found 47,000 vulnerabilities on it. Really more compelling when I can show them a, a quick screenshot and say, out of all the systems in our environment, this one, you can see visually how many potential rogues an attacker could use it to completely compromise us in every way. That visualization of data, you take it away from the big numbers, you take it away from a context that the business leaders don't understand. That's a thing they can understand. And now you can start to talk about it from a risk perspective, right? They're going to be more engaged about, oh, yeah, that's bad. What do we need to do about it? All right, well, let's talk about the plan. I need this much budget. I need these tools. I need these people. It changes the nature of the whole conversation. So that the communication piece, right, is, is so key in terms of how we prioritize, how we get buy-in, how we help the, the leadership folks understand where to start in the midst of all that noise. Don't give them the 100,000 options. Give them the one or two options. These, these are the areas we got to focus on. That changes the whole game for security folks. And that's where we, I really do see the industries moving more and more that direction as we try to help make better decisions about all this stuff. I hope so. I'm glad because I think that that's definitely a key component that a lot of people have not focused on. They've been definitely focused on the technology side of things, which is critical, but I think it's how we communicate and the discourse in which we we speak to people like CFOs, for example, and what things are going to be important to them. So I definitely... I second your opinion, and I do hope to see that there's a change in the space. But one of the things I'd like to sort of maybe close the interview on, Nathan, is we started with the 44% over the last two years. Do you believe or do you have sort of a hypothesis on what we can expect in terms of insider uh, like you know, threats will increase over the years now? I mean, that 44 is quite significant based on what you said today, whether it's an oversight or a credential compromise. But Will it get worse or do you think that we've sort of got it under control? I think right now, my sense of it is that we're kind of in a plateau state, right? It's still growing about the same kind of rates. But as, frankly, you know, the global economy situation is becoming what it is, there's a lot of fear about that. I think we're seeing the sort of great reshuffling activity is starting to come down a little bit which is going to, again, limit the number of opportunities for those kind of accidental potential compromises or data losses. The key to, though, to it is I mean, it can very easily ramp back up because the, the core of the problem hasn't changed. Again, it's not just about people moving. It's about the fact that we as organizations don't do a good job of controlling our financial spaces. We don't do a good job of controlling endpoints for things that are outside of our corporate environments. We don't have good free your own device policies. There's a lot of things that the organizations are not doing. It's really not the employee's fault in that case. So until folks take that part of it seriously and start to make the changes accordingly, right? To get away from this sort of free-for-all thing that we did in the early part of 2020 when the pandemic started, to just say, doesn't matter what we do, let's just keep the business running. Keep the lights on. Yeah, that time's done, right? We've kept the lights on, worked through it. 
if you are an organization that's still operating under the, the, the mindset of doesn't matter what we do, let's just keep everything going. You're behind the curve and you're going to be seeing a growth in these kinds of attacks and these kinds of problems because you haven't really started to build the controls around all of those moving parts that you need to do. But I think it's, it's going to be an interesting thing for the next year or two to see what that number does. And I agree with you. It's a, it was a huge, huge increase over the last two years. If people have gotten the message and we start to see some work towards that, that basic management of the things that are often compromised, that number should start coming down. If people have decided that it's just frankly not very sexy cybersecurity work and I want to just buy the next, you know, hot tool and, you know, have some fun with something of bright, shiny technology. Yeah, that number may drive right back up again because the the underlying problem isn't going to go away. Yeah, most definitely. I'm, I understand what you're saying. So hopefully now, because people are not in panic station, like I said, is keeping the lights on when we, we're going through the COVID crisis, people can sort of take a step back, have a moment of clarity, reassess, understand what they need to do and work towards fixing a lot of the, the problems and the issues that they've got. In terms of any sort of closing comments or do you have any final statements you'd like to leave with our audience today, Nathan? Well, I feel like we both collectively here had a good conversation about the panic of what you're doing in the incident response. I think that's the thing I'd want to reiterate, right? Be prepared, right? This is really what this is all about. It's not meant to scare you. It's not meant to be about invoking a whole lot of fear, uncertainty, doubt. This problem can be managed. It's, it's not impossible. It does require some work, right? We've got to understand our environments. We've got to do the work to put good controls in place. We have to put controls in place that still allow the business to function. Like there's a lot of things we've got to do, but be prepared. The more you do up front, the more you have as part of your program, a more preventative approach to this problem, understanding that there's no hundred percent. You still need to have your response tools in play. You still have to have a, a recovery mechanism, all really critical, but Preventative is the place we need to live. The more we do up front, the easier it is, cheaper it is, the faster it is. We're going to limit the amount of damage overall over time. It's, again, the oil change analogy. Do that work up front as much as you possibly can so that you're not in that panic state as often or the panic won't be as severe when it happens. And that's ultimately the best way you're going to get through all of this. Most definitely. And I think this is a good reminder for people to go and check their vehicles immediately, whether that's a metaphor for security or actual physical vehicle as well. So thanks very much for your time, Nathan. I've really appreciated your honesty and your thoughts and opinions. And I can't wait to get you back on the show. Thanks for joining. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. This podcast is brought to you by MercSec, the specialists in security, search, and recruitment solutions. Visit MercSec.com to connect today. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media the voice of cyber.